0: Couple of apologies up front. The first one is that I hope my words are not as hollow as my voice may sound. I've been hit again with either a cold or probably allergies. I'm not really sure if you can tell the difference in Oklahoma. Uh, I'm beginning to learn what it means to be an Okie uh, and get hit by all that there is living in this part of the country. Uh, my other apology this morning, in a way, is to say that as you've just heard. Uh, Our sermon this morning is not a traditional Palm Sunday passage. Uh, As we've been working through the book of Romans, I wanted to get us to Romans 6 next week for Easter. Uh, That is very much an Easter passage, and so this week we're in series. It doesn't quite fit with where we are in in, uh, the flow of the church calendar. But uh, nonetheless, a great passage on what it means to be in Christ. So one of the great things about cell phones... There's a lot of bad things. You ever have days you just want to throw it in the can and be done? One of the great things about cell phones is that, at least in theory, it's made communication easier, faster, and more convenient. But the downside is that with this increase in volume and the amount of communication that we give and receive, we are not nearly as careful or precise, and we are now more prone to error. And so a handwritten letter used to be a carefully crafted thing. I can remember writing uh, handwritten letters. You guys remember this stuff called whiteout? Apparently it still exists. I'm not really sure what you use it for anymore. Uh, But you would, you know, paint out the little white paintbrush. Your errors now. We just hit the delete button. It's great. But, you know, because of this, we're not as careful in our communication. I would imagine you probably have some patterns of typos, ones that you notice you do a lot. Uh, whether you're on a computer, but especially on your phone. And we have this thing called autocorrect, which is, in theory, a great idea. But we all know sometimes autocorrect is not right and is not helpful. Uh, in fact, sometimes autocorrect uh, says some things that are quite hilarious. Uh, some maybe even a little inappropriate. Uh, but we fire off those texts or those emails from our phone and we realize that we have sent something we do not intend. So I conclude most of my emails, uh, in Christ, comma, Aaron. If you've received emails from me, you'll notice this is my pattern often. Uh, the problem, though, is that the letter "in" and the letter M are right next to each other on that tiny little keyboard on your phone. And so when you type I am, uh, autocorrect, helpfully capitalizes the I, adds the apostrophe, making my conclusion of my email, I'm Christ, Aaron. <laughs> And you can understand why that's not a good thing. <laughs> the very message my life is dedicated to, which is that I'm not Christ and you're not Christ, is now perpetuated in my emails. So if you get one for me in the future, uh, let me know. Maybe you get a free Starbucks card. I don't know what, um, but I have no idea how many emails I've signed. I'm Christ. Fortunately, most people don't read their email that closely, so you haven't noticed. We're about halfway through this series, In Christ Alone. It's based on the first half of the book of Romans. I want to just gather our thoughts again. Where are we going with all this? Because Paul writes these really long sentences that are hard to understand. There's a lot of rich theology in this letter. What's the point? The point that Paul is trying to get across to his original audience, and therefore now us today reading this letter, is that he wants people to understand the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us. And not just that, not just to believe that, not just have head knowledge about what God has done in Christ, but that that truth would change us. It would transform us. We would surrender to that. And we would experience this rich, robust life, which the Bible uses this simple phrase, in Christ, to talk about that. What does it mean to be in union, to be in relationship, to be in Christ, And so he explains this. He commends this gospel. He celebrates it. He elevates it. He wants us to believe this good news is worthy of our attention and, in fact, giving our entire lives to it. And so like Jesus, he uses a number of different strategies or images or metaphors to try to communicate this truth. Jesus often talked in word pictures. He told stories. And so Paul also does. He doesn't use parables as much like Jesus, but he uses different images to try to communicate the truth of what this means. So he uses the image of, of the body, the human body. And he says, being in Christ's family is like that. We're all different parts. And when we work together in unity, we accomplish God's purpose. He says that the Christian life is like being married. It's a covenant relationship. We are married to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. At other places, he uses the building images. He says, we're like stones that are being built on Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. And together we are this house, And so here, Paul uses a number of different examples in Romans to try to communicate the incredible truth of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. I talked a few weeks ago about the images of debit and credit and how your life is like a bank account. And we live it as though we were trying to get more credits than debits. But in reality, it's about what Christ has done for us. One massive de- debit to take away our sin. One massive credit, his righteousness placed in our account. So here he uses a little bit of a different image to try to communicate the same thing. He says, here's the reality of the human experience. It comes down to two people who are representatives of two realities. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. That's it. Either you're a rebel, you're part of human rebellion that is turning away from our very creator, or you are in Christ. You've submitted yourself to this new way of living, of being in Jesus. And that's the big idea here, is that as horrible as sin is, and all that comes as a result of Adam's fall, all the distortion, all the corruption, all the pain, all the suffering, everything that is bad about the human experience, as bad as that is, ultimately where he gets is to say that the grace of God is greater and that life in Christ, in Jesus, is so much better than life in Adam. And so he wants us to see this comparison and ultimately to conclude, why would I want to live like this when I can live like this? He wants us to get it and to see what that means. And so that is what we're going to look at today, the difference between being in Christ not me, I'm not Christ, being in Christ rather than being in Adam. And so these two are presented, are presented here as representative figures, not just historical figures, although I believe Jesus and Adam both are, but they're presented as representatives in a legal sense. And so I'd like to uh, use verse 20 as a great summary of this story that he's going to tell, which is where he writes... But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's the story. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. My friend Tim Keller, the Protestant Pope, I affectionately call him. I didn't come up with that. I haven't quoted him in a couple of weeks, so I'll give you another Tim Keller quote that captures this very nicely. Tim Keller wrote, The gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved And accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This presents the contrast of life either in Adam or in Christ. Here's how I like to capture it very simply to say there are two realities that every human being must face every day. Whether you're a believer or even if you're an unbeliever, you must face this the depth of your own sin and the height of God's grace. Every morning when you wake up, you need to face those two things right? Because if we only talk about grace and we don't talk about the truth, the reality of of who we are and who we were before we were in Christ, then we're going to go to one of two errors. We're going to go toward legalism or we're going to go toward liberalism. And legalism says, I can earn my own salvation. Liberalism says, you don't need salvation. You're perfectly fine exactly as you are. The gospel says, you're not fine as you are, but you can't solve the problem, only the grace of God. The church historian Tertullian said, just as Jesus Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. Legalism, liberalism. The answer is the gospel. In order to believe the gospel, we have to face our own sinfulness. We have to see all that is horrible about the in-Adam experience, but understand why it's so much better to be in Christ. So we begin in verse 12 here. Paul lays out the great conflict. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all people sinned. So his argument is that when the first human beings, Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, sin entered the world and created a corrupted system. And in a way, we inherit, not in a way, we do, we inherit that sinfulness. We are entered into that rebellion. We can't choose whether or not we want to be in that war. We're in it. We're born into the family of the human race and that we actually have a sinful, corrupted nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We're sinners because we have a sinful nature. We receive that. You get that. Congratulations. We're sinners. And therefore, as a result of that, The penalty for our sin is death. So sin entered the world, it spreads to all people, and therefore death spreads to all people. That's the consequence of our sin. But in a way, as you've probably heard me argue before, death is not only a consequence, but it's also a grace. Because death means we don't have to live in our current reality forever. That's a good thing. Death is the great reset in fact, even as believers in Christ, we still experience this part of the judgment. We still have to die a physical death in this body, although we know we have the promise that we will be raised again. And so the great conflict is that we are now living in a system that's affected by sin and death. Both of those things we were not created to live with. We weren't created for sin. We weren't created for death. We were created to live in harmony with God forever. But because of sin we now deal with both of these consequences. So continuing on in verse 13, he says, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. It's a bit tricky to understand what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that people weren't guilty before the law. He goes on to say they very much were, but what he's saying is that by giving the law, we now know that we're sinning. So before the law came, they were guilty, but they didn't know all of God's expectations. Now there's even no more excuse. Now, if you don't know the law, you're still accountable to it. I can be driving along and speeding, and I can get pulled over, and I can say, well, I didn't see the sign. I don't know. Of course, now we have it in our car. You know, the new fancy cars have the speed limit right there in front of you, so there's no excuse. But, but I, can't, I can say, well, I didn't know what the speed limit was. I'm sorry. There's a lot of laws you probably don't know are in the books you're still accountable to those laws. Ignorance is not an excuse. So Paul says, look, people were still guilty even before the law, but now we have the law. And so we have no excuse. So we're brought into this rebellion. We, we can't choose not to sin. And because of that, we inherit this guilt of Adam. That's what Paul's arguing here. He's saying that... Look, there's something that you didn't do and you're now facing the consequences for it. We don't like this in our culture because we're a very individualistic culture. And so we think, well, you know, I'm not responsible for something somebody else does. We don't like this idea of a, of a representative doing something on our behalf. But I think we understand it and we accept it without realizing it. I'm going to give you two quick examples. The first one uh, comes from the Olympics. So they're Olympic athletes and they train very hard and they go and they win the gold medal. And if they have an American flag on their chest, we're watching on TV and we go, yeah, we won the gold. As if we did anything. We're just sitting on our couch eating chips and queso. But we won the gold, right? Because they won on our behalf. We like that positive representation. They're part of us. So somehow we like to take credit for it. But then there are negative examples. There are things that our representatives can decide for us that they have the authority to do. Our Congress has the authority to declare war. They've been given that authority. As a, as a citizen, you may not like that or agree with that, but you're swept up in that through the social contract. And so if they declare war, you are now at war. You can say, well, oh, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go to war. Well, they have chosen, our representatives have chosen in our place. So when it's something bad, we don't like this idea. We don't like that Adam and that this sin has now created this effect that we're swept up into. We think, oh, well, I should have the choice. But here's the good side of it. Here's the positive of this representation. It means that there was not only one man that sinned in our place, creating all of these effects, but there's also one man who did something in our place that we could never have done for ourselves. And so this idea of legal representation is a good thing that Jesus could stand in our place and do what we could never do. And I hate to cheapen the work of Jesus, but in a sense it's like you were sitting on your couch eating chips and queso and did nothing to earn or deserve the medal, and Jesus went and he earned our salvation. We couldn't have done it. And so in effect, this idea that someone can stand in our place is actually a very good thing, and it's the way that it works. And so Paul's saying we've been swept up into this conflict. It's a spiritual battle. It began in the early days of creation, and we are a part of it. And so he sets up this contrast between life in Adam and life in Christ, and he gives us four examples. I'll go through them quickly here. The first one is in verse 15. It's the idea of a trespass, versus a gift. So a trespass is one of the words the Bible uses for sin. And you think about what is it? Well, what is trespassing? It's when you go into a place that doesn't belong to you, you don't have the right to be there. You're crossing over a known boundary. And so it's something that you did, that you deserved, you knew you were doing it, and you will have to pay the consequences, the penalty, or whatever case it may be, for doing that trespass, for going into the area that says, no trespassing, do not enter. It's the opposite in a way of a gift because in a gift is when you get something that's not expected, that's not deserved. A trespass is when you knowingly do something and you get the consequences for it. In Adam, we are trespassers. In Christ, we receive a gift that we couldn't possibly earn. So he goes on, a different example. He compares condemnation to justification in verse 16. Again, it's the idea of our legal status. Do you stand before God in Adam, part of the rebellion, not having repented of your sins and turned to Christ in faith? Then you are condemned before God, whoever you are, no matter what you've done or not done. You're condemned. But in Christ, you stand justified, meaning me and God, we're good. We're on good terms. That's what it means to be in Christ. So you're either condemned Or you're justified, and for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Paul's going to write here in a few chapters later. He goes on to give us a third quick illustration. He says, "It's an example between death and life. The result of your condemnation and your status is death. Put simply, that's the end line. Spiritual death. The end line of being in Christ is spiritual life. And then the final example that he gives is disobedience versus obedience. And this is the result, right? We either, we either disobey God's plan, we continue on in our current status, which is to be disobedient to God, or we go on to obedience. And that's what it means to have faith in Christ. It's not just pure believism. It's not just saying, I believe in God, like we talked about with faith, but it is choosing to submit yourself to God's will and to God's way. To believe and to have faith goes along with obedience. Now, what Paul's not saying here is that all people, because of the work of Christ, are automatically now in Christ. We know Scripture is clear that it's a gift that we have to receive. Verse 17 of chapter 5. If we receive that gift, not earn it, but we receive it. And how do we receive it? We receive it by faith. That's how we're in Christ, because otherwise our default is that we are in Adam. It's something that we have to do, a personal decision that we have to make, which is surrender ourselves to God's good news. And what Paul's trying to do here, he's trying to set it up in a way where it's pretty obvious. I mean, he goes through these four different examples, but I'm thinking... Well, the first one makes it pretty clear. I don't want to be in Adam. I want to be in Christ. You could have saved me a longer sermon and you could have made your point a lot clearer. You didn't have to give us four illustrations. The point is, don't be in Adam. Be in Christ. And yet, we don't see it. We don't see our need. And so what's the great conclusion to this? Verse 20. He says, The law was brought in so that trespass might increase what's paul saying there is he saying god gave us the law so that we would sin more no i don't think that's what he's saying i think he's saying by giving us the law trespassing increased and what's trespass it's a known going over a boundary see before you didn't realize it you were sinning you didn't know it now the law has increased our trespass and when you know that you commit a sin then what do you feel you experience guilt we weren't created for guilt We weren't created for shame, but that's what sin bears in our life. So trespass increased with the law, which means that giving people the right information doesn't solve our problem. We think if people just knew the right thing to do. But Paul says, nope, we got the law, and what did we do? We wanted to sin all the more. We see this with children, don't we? And in fact, I think adults continue to do it. When you know that you're not supposed to do something, don't you have an instinct that you want to do it? right? Don't touch the stove. Good thing to teach your children. But the moment you tell them don't touch the stove, they want to touch the stove. They have to experience for themselves the heat. And that's true of us and our sinful nature. Tell me not to do something or that I can't do something, and I just have this thing that wells up in me that wants to do it. My desire increases, so so knowing the right thing to do doesn't solve my problem. In fact, Paul's going to get into that a lot in chapter 7. I'm pretty sure I'm making somebody else preach that. Where Paul says, I want to do things, but I don't do them. And the things I don't want to do, I do want to do. It's another one of those parts where you're having trouble following him. We all experience that. Simply knowing the right thing to do doesn't change us. We need to be transformed. Our very inner person needs to be changed. Our desires and our affections have to be changed and this only comes through being in Christ because otherwise we're in Adam and sometimes even in Christ we continue to live as though we were in Adam but here's the good news sin does not get the last word amen where sin increased grace increased all the more Right now, I told you guys all the bad news was on the front end of Romans, and then it was all good news. That that was a little bit not totally true. Uh, because Paul continues to weave into the story these comparisons between the bad news and the good news. And he's continuing to tell us how bad life is in Adam because he wants to put that against the the good news, against the backdrop of all the darkness so that we'll see it. So when you go to the jewelry store and you uh, purchase Nice, you know, diamonds or other gemstones. I don't do this a whole lot, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But, you know, like precious metals, it's always, they always put it out on a black material. They always lay out the black material and they put the nice stuff out there. That's what it—I don't do this much, so it's, you know, it's what you see in pictures and stuff, right? Why do we put those precious things against the, the background of darkness so there's a contrast there, so you can see them better, so that the metals will shine, they'll reflect the light better, and that's what Paul's done here. He's putting, again, this experience of being in Christ against the backdrop. He's saying, look how bad things have been messed up. Why would you want to live that way? He wants to show the beauty of the gospel all the more. And so my prayer for you, my hope, is that our experience as God's people is that we will experience the grace of God superabounding in our life, even in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, that we will believe the truth of what Christ has done for us, that we will experience his grace, that we will recognize that we cannot out-sin his grace. We cannot do something so bad that we could never be forgiven by God. Paul was a horrible person before Christ got a hold of his life. There's no person who has gone so far, right? We sang about it this morning. God's love pursues us. And draws us in. And that is my hope for you. you will experience that. God's people have experienced that throughout times. We see the cycle of sin. We see hearts turning away in rebellion from God. And God draws us back time and time again. He proves that He is a God of love and of grace and of mercy and of compassion. He invites us into this new way of being human. To be in Christ. That is to become the people that God created us to be. And in a sense, we see that this gospel now levels the playing field for all of us. And there's this part about this this doctrine of original sin that all people are inherently sinful that we don't like. It sounds really nasty and ugly, but the truth is that levels the playing field because it means that all people are equal. We come into the world as equal people. We're sinners in need of God's grace. And by the way, what that means that we're sinful people, that we inherit a sinful nature, that doesn't mean we're all bad, that we're as sinful and as bad as we could possibly be. No, it means we're people in conflict. Right? Are we bad people or good people? Well, the truth is we're both. Because we're still people who are created in the image and likeness of God, and sin cannot take that away. It can distort it. It can change our ability to reflect that properly. But we're still people who are declared by our God good, and yet we're also bad and wrong because of sin. So we're people in conflict. You are experienced that? That's why life is so exhausting. There's a lot of reasons for that. But ultimately, the reason life is so exhausting is because you are a person who is in conflict. Because you've been born into an environment where you're now not able, apart from Christ, to be the person God created you to be. That's not just cognitive dissonance. That's life dissonance. I just made that up. I don't know if that's a term you're a person living in tension between this life in Adam and this life in Christ. And Jesus says to you, choose to live in me. Be in Christ. Live into that reality. Become a good news person, a person whose very life is completely and radically changed by this good news, of what Jesus has done for us and who he's making us to be and who we ultimately will be when we are finally fully restored and we're no longer in conflict, we are fully in Christ, fully in him. Would you join me as we pray together? Father, we thank you for this incredible truth. God, that you are so good, that you have made a way. And as horrible as sin is, as much as life has been altered by our own rebellion that we're a part of, God, you are renewing and restoring all things and making us into new people. So I pray for every person here today, every person that's listening, God, that you will speak to them and that they would receive by faith this gift that you offer through your Son and begin living and walking in this new reality. God, for all of us, may the truth the reality of being in Christ be something that we become more and more by your grace. God, help us to be, receive your grace, to, to believe it and be changed by it. God, that it would overflow from our lives into the lives of others. Father, we love you and we give you praise today. In Jesus' name, amen.